Our sermon text for this morning is also in John's Gospel. In chapter 12, we'll be reading from verse 35 through 43. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 12, verse 35. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. You can borrow one of those. And if you would, read quietly along with me as I read aloud this, the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you now for your goodness and your kindness to us, especially shown in the coming of your son Jesus to live for us, to teach the truth to us, to expound your word, to do mighty miracles, and then to die, to be risen up, to be lifted up on a cross, drawing all men to himself, a cross where he paid for our sins, a cross where he bore your wrath, a cross wherein our justification is found. We thank you for his resurrection, Lord, we thank you that he is alive today, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and saving a people for himself. That By his spirit and by your word, men and women are hearing the truth of the gospel and they're turning from their sins and turning to you. And Lord, even in the case where men's hearts are hardened and their eyes are blind, you are shown to be the sovereign Lord, the sovereign God who gives salvation freely to those whom you choose, who is a merciful God and is just. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to receive your word, cause it to bear fruit in our lives, that we would not Go from here hearing only, but hearing, understanding, believing, and by your Spirit obeying. 
We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for all time. Amen. Well, we've come now to John's Gospel, in John's Gospel, to the end of Christ's public ministry. As we've seen in John throughout this time, Christ has performed many miraculous signs accompanied by his teaching, which all revealed that he was indeed, as John says, the Son of God, the Messiah, who had come to give eternal life to whoever believes in him. But after Jesus rides into Jerusalem for Passover in chapter 12, we see the focus beginning to shift in John's gospel. No more miraculous signs. This marks the end, in fact, of Jesus' public teaching ministry. And now we've come in John's gospel to what is called the hour of his death. His hour is at hand, he says. Now the time has come for him to glorify the Father by willingly submitting himself to be lifted up on the cross. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We looked at the excitement of the crowd as he came into Jerusalem on that last Passover week and how they all praised his coming and then how it all came to pretty much about nothing after Jesus speaks of his own death. They say in verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. This is them responding to Jesus speaking of his own death. But we heard, Jesus, we heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man, that you must be lifted up on a cross? Well, to their disappointment, Jesus doesn't answer that question, but instead He goes on to exhort them to walk in the light while he, he, the light, remains with them. And this they do not do. They don't walk in the light because John tells us in verse 37, though he had done so many signs, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And this is how the story of the triumphal entry actually ends. It begins with Christ entering into Jerusalem to the praises of the crowd, and it actually ends with him departing from them, verse 36, and then leaving them in their unbelief, verse 37. Despite all the demonstrations of his authority and his power on the whole, his own people did not receive him. Just as John told us in the very beginning of his gospel, he came to his own, he said. Chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So then we come to our passage for this morning, which is, if you look at it, it is the narrator's commentary on all these things. John gives us some commentary on all these things. Inspired by the Spirit, yes, but it is his commentary on what is all taken place. And while his commentary may prove challenging to us, our first step is understanding his aim, recognizing his aim in this commentary that he gives. You see, surely there would have been Jews and Gentiles alike who in the first century when they were reading John's gospel, they would get to this part of the gospel and they would say something along the lines of, how is this even possible? How could the Jews miss their own Messiah? They were the recipients of, of the promise of his coming. And if, if, 
if Jesus really was the Messiah that was spoken of in the Old Testament, how could it be that the nation of Israel passed him by? That so many people, so many Jews heard him, they saw him, they saw his miracles, and yet they still didn't believe in him. This then is the sort of objection that John anticipates. At the end of his public ministry, the majority of Jews still didn't believe in Jesus, even after all he had said and even after all he had done. And how is that, John? How could the Messiah be missed by his own people? If he really was the Messiah, how could they not believe in him? How could he leave them in their unbelief here? So John gives three related answers to this dilemma. First, their unbelief was a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Second, their unbelief was caused by divine judicial hardening. And third and finally, many were silent, many Jews were silent because they sought the glory and praise of man instead of the glory and praise of God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, the fulfillment of prophecy. John's first answer to this dilemma. His, his first explanation of the widespread unbelief in Judea. Verse 37, he says, Though they did, he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says, the unbelief of the people of Israel is no mystery and presents no dilemma to the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Because their unbelief in the Messiah was actually prophesied by Isaiah. When the Lord revealed to Isaiah what the Messiah would be like and what he would do, Isaiah said, who has believed what he heard from us? Isaiah is speaking in what is called the prophetic past, which simply means that while he writes this in the past tense, it's referring to something that is yet to happen. In his prophecy about the Messiah, Isaiah is actually saying, but who's going to believe it? Who will recognize the power of the Lord and his Messiah? That's what it means. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord was the power of the Lord. Who's going to recognize the power of the Lord in his Messiah? And the reason why he says this is revealed in the rest of his prophecy. It's actually Isaiah 53. Many of you know that chapter. Look back to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. He says, who has believed what he's heard from us? This is the part that John quotes. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then listen, listen to what he says about the coming Messiah. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. Again, this is prophetic past. He's speaking about something that is going to happen. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. According to Isaiah, the, the Messiah would not be readily recognized. It would not be the case that when the Messiah came, people would just have to look upon his face and it would be so clear to them the glory of God was shining upon him. 
It wouldn't be that way, Isaiah said. Instead, he said, the Messiah will come and he will be despised and he'll be rejected among men. And he goes on to speak of the Messiah as the suffering servant, the one who would be wounded and who would be crushed for the sake of his people, that men would consider him stricken by God, cursed by God, but that his death would be an offering for sins. So John says, it's no surprise at all that so many people didn't believe in the Messiah. Their unbelief was the fulfillment of what Isaiah had foretold, that the Messiah would be rejected by men, that they would not recognize him as being sent by God or see the power of God at work in him. The unbelief of so many who saw and heard Jesus may have seemed perplexing to some of John's readers. Some of them may have been thinking if Jesus was truly the Messiah, then more would have believed in him. But John points them back to the scriptures. The rejection of the Messiah was foretold even foreordained by God. And there is also illustrated for us here this principle This principle that we've seen played out throughout the gospel that goes contrary to the presupposition of even many today, and that is the presupposition that seeing is believing. That all it would take for someone to believe on Jesus would be to experience something miraculous, to see something miraculous. Some who don't believe today may even think that. But many in that day saw Jesus with their own eyes. They saw him perform mighty miracles. They heard him preach. They heard him teach in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was the best evangelist that ever walked the face of the earth. He was the best preacher that was ever heard on this earth. And yet we see many walk away in unbelief. And it all harkens back to Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or his words in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And as it was then, so it is today that no experience in and of itself can bring a man or a woman to faith in Jesus Christ Nothing short of a supernatural work of the Spirit to give a new heart is needed for an individual to come to faith in Christ. Is it incredible to you that they saw Jesus and that they heard his preaching? That they experienced his miracles, they witnessed his miracles, and yet were unwilling to profess him as the Messiah and Lord? Is it incredible to you that men can be surrounded by the evidence of God's existence, that life and death are in his hands, and yet still deny that it is so? It shouldn't be incredible to you. All that the unbelief of man proves is the truthfulness of Scripture and the desperate state that we're in apart from the gracious work of God to give us a new nature and eyes that see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That brings us to John's second reason for why so many Jews did not believe in their own Messiah. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
Again, John quotes Isaiah here, and what he says is hard for us to understand, or perhaps it's just hard for us to accept. Because his point in quoting Isaiah is to say that those who didn't believe in Jesus couldn't believe in Jesus. He literally says that they couldn't believe because their eyes had been blinded and their hearts had been hardened. Now, the scripture that John is citing here is from the passage in Isaiah, where Isaiah, it's at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And this is the passage where Isaiah is given a vision of God in heaven. And it's at this point where Isaiah is called by God to be his prophet, to speak his word to the people of Israel. And listen, this is Isaiah's first assignment as the prophet of God. Listen very carefully, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, what we might find difficult here is that John's interpretation of this passage, John's spirit-inspired interpretation of this passage is that God is the one who blinded their eyes. God is the one who hardened their hearts to both his prophet and his message. They were under God's judicial hardening. And John's application of it is that as it was in the day of Isaiah, so it was in the day of Christ. That Jesus spoke the word of God to the people and the divinely ordained effect was that their eyes were blinded to see who was before them and their hearts were hardened against him. And this is the difficulty that we face here. That we don't understand how God can hold men and women responsible for their unbelief if he's the one who hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. Well, one thing we can say to that is that Scripture teaches that God is just. So we can say any hardening that comes from him is a just judgment on the one who is hardened. None are hardened that are not deserving of God's judgment. But we could also say that even when God's judgment comes this way upon man, man still remains guilty for his rejection of God. He still makes the choices that he wants to make. In his rebellion, man cannot truthfully say, I don't want to rebel, but God is making me do it. I want to believe, but God won't allow me. You see, somehow, and it may be beyond our ability to fully understand this, but somehow, God is absolutely sovereign over the heart of man, over the course of this world, over all that comes to pass, and yet, at the very same time, man has a volition. Man chooses as he so desires, and he's responsible for his choices, and he's culpable before God for his rebellion. So that speaking to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter was able to say, listen to what Peter says. This Jesus, he's speaking to the Jews in, in Jerusalem. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Now we might read that and we might say, 
Well, which was it, Peter? Which was it? Was Jesus crucified because men willingly had him crucified? Or was it because God willed that it would be so? And Peter answers, yes. Yes. You got it. Yes. Now, this passage in John isn't the only place in Scripture that speaks of God hardening men's hearts. The Apostle Paul also deals with this very same issue in Romans chapter 9. And the context is the same, by the way. He's dealing with the question of why so many Jews did not receive salvation in their Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And so Paul speaks in Romans 9 to the sovereignty of God in salvation. And he speaks of God's sovereignty over men's salvation. And then right after he speaks of God's election of Jacob and not Esau, that he set his love in a special way on Jacob and not on Esau, we read in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now we could summarize this passage like this. God is free to have compassion on whomever he wills. And God is just in hardening whomever he wills. And though we might be prone to complain and say, that's not fair, God. The biblical answer is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Is there injustice on God's part? The answer, by no means. And we might be able to understand this, at least in part, because Scripture teaches us that no one seeks God after their, on their own. No one seeks after God on their own. There are none, Scripture says, there are none who are righteous, who of their own nature desire God and the things of God. So those that John speak, 
speaks of, who, who did not believe in Jesus because they could not believe. They were not neutral in their affections. They were not innocent in their intentions. They had willfully transgressed God's commands. They were in willful rebellion against God. Just like you and just like me, they did not deserve God's mercy, but only his judgment. And so what is actually truly amazing is that God has not hardened the heart of every man and every woman. He has not given every sinner over to his sin, every rebel over to his rebellion. What is truly amazing is that in his mercy, God actually draws sinners to himself and to his son. He gives them new hearts, new inclinations, a new nature by his spirit. That is why Paul wraps up that section in Romans by saying, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This is Romans eleven thirty three. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And amen. Now let me ask you then, what was the difference? What was the difference between those who had eyes to see Jesus as their Messiah and those whose eyes were blinded to him? What was the difference between the Jews who believed in Jesus like John and the apostles and those who walked away in unbelief on that day of the triumphal entry? What is the difference even now between those who reject Christ in unbelief and those who receive him in faith? Well, the answer is only the undeserved mercy and the amazing grace of a sovereign God. So coming back to our text in John, John says even though Jesus had done many signs before them, they still did not believe and they could not believe, for as in the day of Isaiah, God's judgment was upon them so that their eyes were blind and their hearts were hardened to the truth of the gospel. Now, we might be prone to wonder as we think of that, we think of the possibility of God's hardening that comes upon men at times. As we think of it, we might consider the unbelief of many today around us that we know might consider if perhaps God's judgment has come upon them in the same way. And while that might be possible, I feel that I must tell you, God hasn't called us to discern that. What we are called to do, church, is to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to pro proclaim Christ and Christ crucified for the salvation of all who would believe on him, and then to trust the Lord with the results, knowing that he is the God of salvation. Ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we can give him all the glory for our own salvation. When we think of our own salvation, we can give God all the glory for it from start to finish, from top to bottom, from first to last, right? And we can look to him for the salvation of those who do not believe while we strive to be faithful in our witness to them, our proclamation of the gospel. We come then to John's third reason for the lack of Jewish belief in the Messiah. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John says many, even in in high places, many even of the authorities did believe in Jesus, but their faith never went public. They kept it private. They kept it secret. Why? Because they were afraid of losing their access to the synagogue. They didn't want to be social outcasts. They wanted to be praised by men, not chastised or mocked by men. And the question that we might ask and we ought to ask is, was their faith in Jesus actually the kind that Jesus was looking for? Was it the kind that results in eternal life? Well, judging by the words of Christ himself, we ought to be hesitant to affirm any faith that is only secret and private. Genuine faith in him is expressed through confession, not hidden away for the fear of man. He says in Mark 8.38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He says in Matthew 10, verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, it's possible that some of those whom John spoke of here did later confess faith in Christ. But at this time, John is saying that there were many who knew, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they weren't willing to confess him as the Messiah because of what it would mean for them. They didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to be ridiculed. They didn't want to be made fun of. They didn't want to be abandoned by their family members. They didn't want to lose their jobs. They didn't want to be treated as a traitor to their own people, their own nation. But the crux of the matter, you see, was that they loved the praises of men more than they longed for the approval of God himself. They sought after what man could give them rather than God's gift of salvation in Christ. They sought the earthly security that man could give rather than trust themselves to God's care for their eternal souls. How sad it is that this is the case with so many, not even in John's day, not only in John's day, but throughout history and even today. Anglican preacher J.C. Ryle says we may learn from these verses the amazing power which the love of the world has over men. There are thousands of people who know far more in religion than they act up to. They know they ought to come forward as decided Christians. They know that they are not living up to their light, but fear of man keeps them back. They are afraid of being laughed at, jeered at, despised by the world. We could add being on the wrong side of history. They dread losing the good opinion of society and the favorable judgment of men and women like themselves. May that not be the case today with any who are here. But I have to say this can even be true of Christians, can it? That we can be so easily preoccupied with men's opinion of us rather than God's opinion. What will please man rather than what will please and honor the God of our salvation. 
What glory, what praise, what honor that men can give us rather than the glory that comes from God through Jesus Christ. That fear of man which has hindered so many from confessing faith in Christ can also hinder the Christian in growing their faith in Him. It can stop us from experiencing the joy of our salvation. It can rob us of our assurance. It can hinder us from walking in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul says to the Ephesians. It can render us ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ when we're preoccupied with what men will think instead of what God thinks, the glory that comes from God, instead of longing for the day when we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever a man can say to you today will not compare at all, friends, to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant on that last day. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, what will we think of what we did today, right? What will matter most to us then, on that day? So John's description of these men ought to cause us to reflect upon our own lives, church. What do I love more? What do I love more? What am I striving after in my workplace, at home, with my parenting, on my social media, with my interaction with friends, even my involvement in this church? What am I after? Is it the glory that comes from man? Is it their acceptance? Is it their praise? Or is it the glory that comes from God and Jesus Christ? Well, then let us look to our Lord and Savior who was crucified for us and for the sin of the fear of man that we might be forgiven of it, but also that we might be freed from it and by His Spirit be sanctified so that we might desire the glory that comes from God in Jesus Christ over the glory that comes from man. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do ask you to do this work in us by your Spirit that we would long to hear above all other things that we would long to hear those words from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, help us to have an eternal perspective, Lord, and not be focused upon the glory that comes from man. Help us by your grace and by your spirit not be like the ones in John's day who were afraid to publicly confess their faith in Jesus Christ because of what men might say or do. Give us that kind of boldness, Lord, to joyfully proclaim our faith in Christ and to obey him in our lives in a way that brings honor to you. We ask that you would do this for Christ's sake and in his name. And amen.